It surely is a great blessing to assemble this morning and to gather for the purpose that we have, the opportunity to, in fact, to lift up our considerations and our life in worship unto God. Worship is, of course, acts of reverence directed to God, and we have assembled to perform those acts that He's authorized in His Word this morning. As you probably can already tell, we're going to be studying about a subject that's very personal, a subject that, of course, has a great deal of weight and significance attached to it. As you begin to prepare your, your mind to study that topic with me, I'd like to add one word of announcement. I had failed to, to remind Brother Lester of it, but let's not forget that this afternoon is the fourth Sunday singing at the Union Hill Congregation, uh, just over the way in Jackson County a bit. And they, they were very supportive of our singing back in August, so let's keep that in mind at 2 o'clock this afternoon at the Union Hill Church of Christ. A study of attendance. This opening slide will be one that I hope will motivate some of the thoughts that you and I will consider this morning. We each know well the thorough thrust of Psalm 85 verse 8 where it says, I will hear what the God of heaven will say. There is an affirmation that the individual there under consideration would certainly hear and have an ear to put into practice that which God had affirmed. That, of course, is still our desire. That's our earnest intent. It is, with that in mind, a lot of questions might well be asked relative to the services of the church. What about these assemblies? What are they? Am I supposed to be present? Is attendance a required thing by God? Those are all very good questions. And they're questions that you and I will come to the bottom and ask perhaps much more seriously the following. Does the God of heaven require me, require you, to be present at all the assemblies of the church? As you and I give thought to that this morning, may I ask that we do so with an intent to hear what it is that God has to say, to listen with intensity, and of course put into practice those things that you and I learned from His inspired will this morning. Let's begin the lesson with a, a, a circumstance, a consideration of the situation itself. There are a number of congregations, of course, close to here. And in the Nashville area, I often hear individuals speak about the circumstance there. And it's not unusual to be something like this. Whatever number of individuals is present for the Sunday morning worship, you can probably count on no more than half that for Sunday night. No more than a fourth of that on Wednesday night. Now, brethren, that's tragic. The fact is, here we do, don't suffer that kind of difficulty. You can look at the numbers on the table to my right and left. And, of course, here we don't suffer that degree of consideration. But nonetheless, it seems to me that these particular thoughts are still worthy to instill within our heart. What does the Bible say about attendance? I hope that it's not just a habit. I hope that for us who longingly and yearningly look forward to coming, that it's simply more than something we do two or three times a week, but rather it's something to which we can look with the attitude and the consideration that is in fact presented in the Word of God. I've listed two verses there at the bottom of that slide. I would ask you in terms of our approach to keep this in mind. There's a haunting question asked in Romans 4 verse 3. 
The question, of course, in the midst of this interesting discussion, in the midst of understanding where the old law put place, Paul said, What saith the Scripture? What he thought didn't make any difference. What some committee of individuals thought had no bearing on the matter. What saith the Scripture? May I suggest that should be our earnest plea for this morning, even in regard to this subject. What does it say? And if it does give that indication that something about my life needs to change, I need to be more faithful in my attendance. I need to be dedicated and devoted to that. Then may we, under the banner of serving the God of heaven, make the changes that are necessary. As we study this matter of attendance, isn't it interesting to reflect on Samuel's interesting discussion of of the long ago? In 1 Samuel 3, verse number 9, you may remember that on that occasion, here God was sending a message or communicating. And the interesting response was this, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. As you and I strive to hear the word of God this morning and what he has to say on a subject like this one, let's come to our next slide. The matter of attendance. First of all, as we discuss some of those things, I would ask that you think with me about the wording as it is used within the pages of the New Testament. As we come to the bottom, there are some circumstances that you and I should certainly keep in mind. In Acts 8, verse number 27, the reference is made to a eunuch who had traveled a rather far distance from Ethiopia and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. He had assembled. He had arrived. He had made transportation from an initial location to the place wherein the worship was taking place. Keeping that thought in mind, look at the next one in Acts 20, verse number 7. It says, When the disciples came together, there's the understanding then that they were capable of coming together. They had within them the opportunity and the provision whereby they could come together. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. In verse number 20, as Paul addressed the church in Corinth, he made note to them that when you come together, later in that same chapter, verses 33 and 34, when you come together, may I ask you to consider the word come And there at the bottom, that has the thought behind it. They had gathered, they had assembled, they had made again movement from some initial location to the fact they came where the church was assembling. But all those verses very well suggest that you and I consider the following. It might be that an individual cannot come. In other words, maybe it's due to an accident. Perhaps it's due to sickness or illness. Perhaps there is some other unavoidable circumstance that precludes that person from coming. And if that be true, surely the considerations of the worship discussions of the New Testament are not violated. The person would have come if he or she could, but they couldn't. May we say that God well understands those circumstances. And maybe you and I have been in situations in which we could not, due to illness or, again, some other matter, come to the services. May I suggest to you, there was even Old Testament precedent to this. 
in Numbers chapter 9. Under the days of the law of Moses, we remember then that, of course, the children of Israel had commandment to observe things like the Passover. But we also know that there were other matters and circumstances that might make a person unclean and therefore unable to come. Well, what did that mean? Numbers chapter 9 says, Moses, if somebody cannot come to the Passover in the month, the first month of Abib, then you make it available to them in the second month. Notice, God understood that they were not able to come on that first occasion because, again, He made a wardens of that opportunity in the second month. But I would ask as you close that slide with me, God knows very well, of course, the situation of my life or yours, and He knows very keenly the circumstances. And excuses will not work. I've been very careful to use the phrase, could not come. Notice that's very different than would not come. Maybe there's an individual who, upon circumstances, reach a point and just simply feel as if, I think I'll not go. I could go now, mind you. My health is good enough. All is well with me. I could go, but I just believe I'll choose not to. May I ask you to reflect on Luke chapter 14 for a moment? There's a presentation made there from the lips of the Savior Himself as He discussed the distinction between an excuse and a reason. It was true there, wasn't it, that... There was a great feast made. And the time came when all was ready, and the master sent out and said, Bid those come who have been invited. And it says they began to make excuse. One of them said, I've bought a parcel of land, and I've got to go see it. Another, I've bought some oxen, and I've got to go prove them. Another, I've married a wife, and I can't come. You remember what the master said, don't you? All of us do. He said, not a one of them that's been invited are going to come to my feast. You go out and get the lame and the blind and the halt and the maimed and the others because they'll be excited to come. You'll notice he said the things the others were making were excuses. May you and I be very careful and be very mindful of trying to make statements about I can't come. Can you really not come? Can I really not come? Or is it just, I don't want to be there? Because if so, that's a far deeper reflection of the condition of my heart, and all isn't right. And in fact, there's a great deal of divide between where I am and where God would have me to be. As we study this even more thoroughly, it causes all of us to think very clearly about the absencing from the assemblies. Is it an excuse, or is it a viable reason? God knows the answer to that. May I say that wouldn't it be terrible to arrive at the day of judgment and to be all prepared under what the banner of one considers to be right with God only to have the books open and he says, Where were you on Sunday night? Where were you on Wednesday night? And as Jesus sits there with tears streaming down his face, he said, I went to the cross for you. I suffered inconvenience. I suffered difficulty, affliction, oppression, and trial, and I didn't blink at it. And you couldn't come to services on Sunday night? You couldn't come to services on Wednesday night? I have a feeling there'll be a lot of speechlessness then. Causes us to think twice about it now, doesn't it?
there's more the Bible has to say about it than this. Let's turn the page and consider another. For you see at the top of this slide, you and I know, and I'm not suggestive that this is the perspective taken by any in our congregation, but certainly there are many in our world for whom priorities are misplaced. Oh, they consider it some priority to attend on Sunday morning, but they're rarely found on Sunday night, rarely found on Wednesday night, maybe even the Sunday morning Bible study. Maybe it's recreational activities. My favorite ball team is playing, you know. I just love my favorite NFL team, and they're scheduled to start at 5.30. Well, surely God will understand. Or I've had an awfully busy day at work, and I sure would like to just kick my feet up in the recliner. It's Wednesday night, you know. Surely God will understand. Are you sure about that? As I mentioned, think of the approach our Savior took. How easy would it have been for Him to turn aside from the cross just to satisfy His personal pleasures, but He never did. You see, He paid the price for your sins and mine. He, in fact, bore the burden of that moment and did so unflinchingly. As we come to the bottom of this slide, may I ask you to notice two verses as we prepare to look at Hebrews chapter 10. A moment ago, I mentioned that Numbers chapter 9 passage, and we made reference to verses 1 to 12, but verse 13 is one that I would ask that you consider. That scenario to which I pointed a moment ago, a person unclean, unable to keep that Passover, God understood that situation, but may we ask this, suppose a person just didn't want to take it in the first month, I just don't feel like keeping the Passover today. I'll wait until next month. It's going to be offered again, you know. Numbers 9.13 says, The man that had that attitude is to be recognizing of his sin. He's to bear his own burden. Now, often in the Old Testament, that brought a sentence of death. God didn't look very lightly on excuses. It was His command that they keep that assembly in that first month, if at all possible. In Zephaniah 1, verse number 12, centuries later, there's a description given about individuals on that occasion who themselves were very self-sufficient, and they felt comfortable in the circumstance they were, and the things of God weren't all that significant to them. The warning given, of course, was this. God knows exactly the circumstance they're in, and they will, in fact, have to face God in judgment for that. Now, may I ask, if that was true beneath that lesser covenant of the Old Testament, what do you think is true about the greater covenant of the New Testament? If I absence myself from the assemblies without good reason, if I just choose not to come, well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10 and let's see the answer. There is perhaps no clearer passage of all than, than these, but we will look at some others along the way. Hebrews chapter number 10 is a rather potent passage, a penetrating text. In the midst of it, you'll begin to develop with me some appreciations like these. There at the bottom, I might ask that you at least think about the setting of the book. I believe it helps a great deal. The book of Hebrews was written in the seventh decade, that's the 60s of the first century. 
by that time, there was a rather overwhelming degree of difficulty being faced by a number of Christian brethren. The government, after all, by that time, Nero was on the throne and all wasn't well. The government oppressed Christians. There was a great deal of persecution, not only from them, but Jews, of course, didn't have much interest in it. There was a number of forces waged against Christianity. It would be easy for a person to begin to wonder, maybe I just don't need to go today. Maybe I'll just stay home. After all, if I go, there's persecution waiting for me. There may well be a great deal of antagonism moved in my direction by those who do not like the fact that we're gathering. Maybe I'll just not go today. In the midst of that, Hebrews chapter 10 reads like this. I'll begin reading in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the reading through verse number 31. And now let's go back and revisit a few of the expressions, some of the statements, a number of the particular statements that were made. As we do that, we come here to the bottom of the slide. And let's begin our discussion like this. The book of Hebrews lifts high, of course, the realization of what the Old Testament was, that law of Moses. But he's quick to write the fact that there's a better covenant it's founded on greater promises. It is, in fact, such that it has a far better mediator. As those thoughts are developed, there is a reference to the house of God. The house of God. Look back to chapter 3 and notice one of the statements made about that house. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 4, For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house. May I invite you to notice you and I are the house of God. We as the church are his house. He is our high priest. We are beneath him in the sense we serve him. He's the head of this body. With that concept in mind, this consideration of the house... This next slide will ask you and me to take note of some of those commandments that we just read. 
Verse number 22 of Hebrews chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Now that's stated with a character of a command. May I ask you to notice that is not given as an optional matter. It is not presented as an expediency, if you will. That word, that phrase, let us, often in Greek idiom, it had to do with the thrust of a commandment. May I say to all of us as Christians, we are here given a matter, an order. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. That means we should strive to draw near to God and to seek to be as He would have us to be. To desire to order our life in such a way that it would be in compliance with His will. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me for the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the description of one who is drawing near unto God. You'll notice the verse ends by saying, "...having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water." That appears to be a reference to baptism. In baptism, we are washed. Now, we don't use soap. The blood of Christ is the detergent. It washes the sins away from our life, sets us on a position that we can be righteous and just and sanctified before God. You'll notice here's another statement commanding us as we contemplate obedience to the Master. You'll notice on that slide how sweet it is to contemplate the pureness of heart in approaching God. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7 and Proverbs 23, 23. You may notice in light of that that we come to yet another commandment. This one taken from verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. May I suggest to you specifically about that latter part, without wavering? It is the will of God that you and I be sufficiently fortified, that we be sufficiently solidified, that we waver not in our faith. It's interesting, isn't it? I read about fortified cereal, and I read about fortified other food products. God wants us to be fortified so that there's no wavering. Jesus stated, didn't He? that men ought always to pray and not to faint. He didn't want us to waver, and yet isn't it odd that sometimes individuals absent themselves from the services, the very place where prayers take place and the very place where access to the perfect will of God is made, and then they end up fainting at some later time in life. Is it God's fault? Can't be. They just didn't do what God told them to do. Attendance at the services is a vital matter. It really is. Notice again the wording, let us hold fast the profession. The Greek word identifies to grasp very tightly and to not let go. You and I are instructed then in regard to our faith to grasp on to the source and to be devoted to it in such a way we are not in position to let it go no matter what the circumstance that doesn't speak very consistently about failure to attend the services then. 
if my dedication to God isn't enough to bring me to come on a Sunday night, on a Wednesday night, I'm apparently not grasping very tightly. It describes an individual who apparently has other matters that seemingly, at least to that person, are higher in priority. And I'm grasping other things more tightly. That isn't a very consistent statement. You'll notice in verse number 23, to hold fast the profession of our faith. That word profession in the King James translation in other translations is rendered confession. May I ask, what confession is made just prior to baptism? And you and I know it so well because it's such a moving and compelling thing. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If I do believe that with all my heart, then I shall follow everything that also emanated from His mouth, including attendance at services and including the other attributes and matters of life. We begin to see that from verse number 23, when we then absent ourselves from services, that almost surely means other matters of our life also we aren't grasping very tightly either. And it's indicative of life that needs to be seriously reconsidered. Not only that, look what else. The Hebrew writer isn't finished. He comes to all of us, whether a faithful Christian or not, and He challenges us with what is done at these services. Look at the next verse. To consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Question, can I carry that out if I'm not here? If my brethren are assembled and I'm supposed to provoke them to love and good works and I'm not there, how can I provoke them to love and good works? Now, I might lead to question in their mind, well, where's brother so-and-so? Where's sister so-and-so? If they're not here, maybe I don't need to be. If anything, my absence is a provocation to their failure, not to their good works. If anything, my absence is more likely an encouragement to their faithlessness than anything else. Doesn't it cause one to think twice? If we are commanded to provoke one another to love and good works, there is no better place to do that than where those brethren are assembled. When they come together to offer the heartfelt praise and worship to God. At this point, you might notice some of the characteristic ideas of those words. Those words mean to observe, to notice one another. May I suggest that when someone isn't here, other people notice. Our elders notice. Many of us as brothers and sisters, we wonder about you. We wonder, where is he? Where is she? Is all well with them? So you may receive a phone call. We missed you on Wednesday night. We missed you on Sunday morning Bible study. Is all okay? We're not doing that out of a nosy attitude. It's done because we're concerned. It's done because we have a consideration as to where you should be and where you weren't. Consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. At that point, you'll notice he then comes to the next verse. At this point, verses 22, 23, and 24 have all been these commandments, but notice their application to the next passage. Verse 25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. 
there are a number of things that might be noted, one of which is this. Already among the Hebrew brethren, some had begun to absent themselves from services. And it's easy to understand maybe what they were thinking. The persecution is dire. The circumstances are very inconvenient. I may be threatened in my life if I go. I believe I'll just not. Even in the midst of that, the writer said, don't forsake the assemblies. Even if you're threatened when you go, don't forsake the assembly. Even if there's persecution when you arrive, don't forsake the assembly. What does that say about some of the supposed reasons given by some in our world today? Too tired? Really? It's been a hard day. You really think that's a good enough reason? You have a headache. Really? Now, I realize there may be those torturous migraines, but other kinds of matters in life, I think we ought to think very carefully. If none of those other reasons were satisfactory according to this passage, let's finish verse number 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There was a strong temptation, and some had already begun to follow into it to forsake the assemblies. And the Hebrew writer used this passage, the Holy Spirit through the Hebrew writer that is, hopefully stopping this practice immediately. Brethren, this needs to stop, he said. Don't forsake the assemblies. It is vital for your spiritual nourishment. It's vital for the encouragement of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It is that which God commands as we develop that more thoroughly. You'll notice a number of the duties that then are carried out as we assemble. Have you ever stopped to think of how many commandments in the New Testament I am purposefully violating if I choose not to assemble? Like that command to sing. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. If the brethren are there and I'm at home, how can I sing to them? It goes without saying, I can't. If I'm commanded in the New Testament to pray with them and for them and they're there praying and I'm not, I'm violating that commandment. That commandment that speaks of the other activities of edifying one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 11 and 12, and I'm commanded to do it. If they're there and I'm not, I'm violating that commandment. Someone has counted that there are no less than 45 New Testament commandments deliberately transgressed every time a person fails to assemble. Something to think about. 45 commandments I'm choosing to violate. As you and I give thought to all of that, Let's close that slide by noting this statement. The writer wasn't finished, and you may have noticed it as we read it. Verse number 25 had spoken about not forsaking the assembly. And as profound and as powerful as that is, look at the next verse. The first word of the verse is for. That's a conjunction linking the matters of the previous verse to this one. And he says, for if we sin willfully... And that nails it, doesn't it? Many perhaps have been in position to ask, so is it a sin if I choose not to go? Now again, we aren't talking about that case when a person cannot come, but 
for an individual who can come and chooses not to, is it a sin? The Holy Spirit says yes. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. It is a sin to absent ourselves from the services when we could be there. Now that means you and I know very well that sin will keep us out of heaven. Sin will keep us out of the gracious presence of the eternal God of heaven at the judgment and thereafter. It's important then to appreciate complying our will to His, to do that which is pleasing in His sight. Verse 26, if we sin willfully. You may notice verse 27 then paints a rather dramatic picture. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. So how does God look upon those who choose to be absent? The words used are judgment and fiery indignation. Verse number 28 says, Those that despised Moses' law question. The indication that the writer is using is apparently to willfully absent the services is despising the law of God. Do you want to give an answer to that? Do I? Because the next verse says, How much sore punishment. Suppose ye shall be he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. You see, if we choose to absent ourselves from the services, we're walking right all over Christ. We're spitting, in essence, on His will. We're giving an impression that it's not that significant and we're treating it with contempt. The question is, how much sore do you think the punishment of God will be upon those who treated Jesus like that? It's a rather frightful consideration, don't you think? And it's one that's worthy of serious deliberation. Let's close our lesson. And let's do it by pulling it all together with a very brief verse from James. We might ask it like this. Is it a good thing to be present at the services of the church? And I don't know of anybody that would say it's not. And James says it like this. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not... To him it is sin. It's a sin to choose to be absent from the services of the church. That includes 5.30 tonight, 7 o'clock Wednesday night, 9.30 Sunday morning. If there's anybody in the audience that needs repentance because of errors along that line, we'd be honored to pray to God on your behalf this morning. We'd be honored to approach God in such a way that you can rest assured that He will forgive you if you will but repent and confess those things. It's also true that if there's one or more in the audience that's never become a Christian, don't you want to be associated with the very one who died on the cross for you? You can be a member of His kingdom. You can be a faithful servant. You can even wear His name. One of the highest privileges vouchsafed to the human family. To enter into that family requires that you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And if today we could assist you in those ways, we would be honored. But may I say more than that, you would be able to set course on a life of faithfulness, attending the services, being there to encourage brethren, and being able to participate and take part in all the ways God would have you to do. Today, if we could help anybody in your response to the gospel in a public way, why don't you come even now while together we stand and sing?